0: look out for that. All right, we're in a brand new series, three weeks starting today. Are you ready? A new series called Family Matters Fight for the Heart. Our text this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you've got a smartphone, open the app, YouVersion app, and feel free to follow along there for the rest of us. If we've got our journals or any notepads you'd like to start taking notes, feel free to do that. Um, I have permission to announce to you this morning also our newest family member. If you have not heard, his name is Caleb Philip Dean. He was born last Easter Sunday. Last Sunday, he's the third child of Andrew and Rachel Dean and and, uh, the new brother to Joshua and Caitlin. Are we excited? Fantastic. And a big congratulations to Jack and Samara, who got married yesterday as well, had the privilege to marry them. A couple, young couple in our church, generally attend the 5 p.m. service, so congratulations. One thing we each have in common, apart from being human, is that you and I come from a family. Family is universal. It's how we start out in life. Family, this thing called family. Family. And if you sit around certain people's Christmas tables, there are certain dynamics that go on, aren't there? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And so families bring out the best in us, don't they? But sometimes families bring out the worst in us. Let's be honest, let's take that Sunday mask off just for a moment if we could. Because families aren't awesome by accident. In fact, by accident, they're in fact average. That's why we've called this series Family Matters, Fight for the heart. We're gonna fight for it. We're gonna work hard for it. I'm not talking about physical fights, by the way. We're gonna work hard to have great families because by accident they're in fact average. They can be. Why are they average? Why could our, why why are our families average by accident? Sometimes because there are all kinds of forces that are coming at your and my life. In the society in which we live, forces such as economic forces, spiritual forces, moral forces, cultural forces, and social forces, that's why we've got to fight for the heart. There are all kinds of forces that are coming your and my way for us to stand and fight for the well-beings of our families, for our families not to be average, but for our families to be great. Do I hear an amen here this morning? Amen. Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's go to this for a moment. If you've got your Bibles or smartphones, whatever, feel free. If you don't, by the way, it's going to be on the screen, so that's okay. But let's talk about Nehemiah. Who was Nehemiah in the history of biblical times? Who was Nehemiah? Nehemiah was, in fact, known as the cup bearer. Do you know what a cup bearer was? Is. A cup bearer is a little bit like a, um, a butler, it was a very trustworthy person, in fact, Nehemiah was. And he worked for the king, Nehemiah. He worked for the king. He was the cupbearer to the king. What does a cupbearer do? A cupbearer drinks from the cup before the king drinks from the cup. He eats from the plate before the king eats from the plate. Are you getting an idea? Just in case, by the way, it's poisoned. And that means Nehemiah would die before the king. Anyone willing to apply for a job like that today? I see that hand. I see that hand. So that's Nehemiah's role. He was the cupbearer. And one day, here he is off serving in another country. And he gets word that back home in his homeland, in Jerusalem, by the way, that his city is in disarray. Here are the people. They are distraught because the walls of the city have being burned down. And, of course, the walls of the city back in those days were very, very important, weren't they? What did they represent? They represented Protection. the people that represented the border of their land and so nobody had been able to repair the walls for hundreds of years people had returned and there's a level of frustration and insecurity because the walls haven't yet been rebuilt and here's nehemiah he gets this unique assignment by the way we all have a unique assignment and nehemiah gets this unique assignment this burden to go back to his homeland, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the king releases him to go back. Not just that. In fact, the king blesses him with money and with resources to help build the walls of Jerusalem. So we have Nehemiah faced with this impossible task ahead of him. No one's been able to do it for hundreds of years. And Nehemiah steps up to the plate and he says in Nehemiah chapter 4, Verses 13 to 14, he says this, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them, say this word with me, posting them by... What were the families holding in their hands? Weapons. What's the weapons that you and I fight with today? We have a prayer meeting here every every Sunday morning at nine o'clock. We have regular church prayer meetings. As Bruce mentioned before, we fight with prayer. Nehemiah's people stood there with physical things, of course, and I'm sure with very spiritual things. But that's another context for another day. The families stood there with swords, spears, and bows. After I looked these things over, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Don't be afraid of them. Remember, what? Remember the Lord, who is what? Great. And he is awesome. Everyone say that word awesome? Awesome, I love that word. And fight for who? Fight for your families. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. And fight for your homes. Fight, 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 he says. What he's saying here is that your family is worth fighting for. Why? Because the values that you and I cherish and the ideas that we hold dear, and I'm sure it was like that for them, is worth fighting for. Press pause for a moment, I'll come back. As a parent, as a parent of only 14 years, I come to this particular series these next few weeks like every parent. I want you to know that. I come with struggles just like you. (laughs) I come Saying that it is extremely hard to be a good, godly parent. I feel every bit overwhelmed, insecure, and out of my league when it comes to parenting, maybe just like you. But every morning I wake, I awake, awaken, (laughs) awake, awake, go with that one. I fight, I fight for my family, I fight for my marriage, I fight for them. And this series comes out of our desire to teach and discuss principles that can make each unique family more effective. You see, here at Door of Hope, speaking of unique, here at Door of Hope, we recognise that every family is unique. Not every family consists of mum, dad, 1.9 children and a dog. Uh, Maybe a couple of cats and a a rabbit. We've got to do something about that rabbit. And those guinea pigs, oh man... (laughs) So whatever your family looks like, I guess what I'm trying to say, whatever your family looks like, it matters to God and it matters to us here at Door of Hope. All right? Are we on the same page? Is that okay? 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 Okay. So talk to me. All right. This series is certainly not about being the same. Yes, it's about moving in the same direction. It's about a journey that we go on together as people in various ages and stages of life. It's certainly not a perfect picture we're trying to paint here, but we are a part of a bigger story. By the way. I guess that's where we're going. If I'm able to have a little bit more light on here, that would be fantastic. It's a bit dim at the moment. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about Bible. Sorry, let's talk about families that are in the Bible. Because it may be a little different to what you are. Thank you. That's awesome. Uh, it's a little different to what you expect. In fact, families in the Bible are filled with incredible struggles and incredible pain. Noah had a drinking problem. Abraham offered his wife to another man. Jacob's son sold their brother into slavery. David had an affair. His son started a rebellion. Adam and Eve, well, they might have been good examples had they not single-handedly caused the downfall of the human race and subsequently raised one son who killed the other. (laughs) Welcome to biblical family. But I wonder if there's hope in there for all of us as we reflect on that just for a moment. Because I, I just got a word from the Lord for some people here this morning. And I want to say this. Is God a failure as a parent when it comes to Adam and Eve? Uh, No. Sorry, the answer is no, by the way. No. Let me kind of give you an answer for that. That He set up the most perfect environment for Adam and Eve to flourish in life. In fact, He, in fact, gave Adam and Eve a free will to soar. In life, the Garden of Eden was unlike any other. In fact, it was, a, it was unexplainable beauty. And so, even in that environment, Adam and Eve actually chose poorly. All right, let's go. Let's go to Jesus. Then was Jesus a bad leader when it came to Judas? Judas the betrayer and uh, that that kind of thing. That's what I'm talking about. Judas was in a perfect leadership environment. But even in that environment, Judas made some decisions, very bad decisions, that certainly had negative consequences. So no, Jesus was not a bad leader. Here's the word I have for some parents in here this morning, and it's this. Sometimes I think parents carry inappropriate guilt. You have taught your children... And maybe one of them makes those inappropriate decisions and choices in life, and we feel like a failure as a parent. How many of us know that life doesn't run on formulas? What I mean by that is, if you do A and B, C will always happen. See, life doesn't run and operate on formulas. It operates on principles, yeah? principles, and also promises of God. And he blesses that, and so it's not a formula. So you can raise five children in the same environment, and there'll be maybe one or two who might make you know, some decisions that you won't necessarily agree with, but we've got to let that go and let God and trust God with those children. Do I hear an amen this morning? Do you receive that this morning? So clearly, let's come back. Let's come, that's the word. Let, this, 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 clearly, God is not saying, as we reflect on biblical families here this morning, he's not trying to paint a picture of the ideal family. So if he's not trying to paint a picture of the ideal family, I have a question for you this morning, and I might have a little answer, by the way. So it's called a rhetorical, that's right, a rhetorical question, isn't it? What is God doing if he's not trying to paint the picture of an ideal family? Maybe it's this. Maybe it's this. And I've got my answer on the... And you can talk about this in your connect groups or at home at lunchtime. I think he's writing a story. I think he's writing a story. A story that has multiple chapters. In fact, this story has been unfolding since time began. And to show that every family and every generation was connected to God's story. That the heart of God was communicated, if you think about that, we're about to go into a story, it was communicated primarily through the heart of a family. Because the heart of the family affects the direction of every child and the future of every nation. You think about it, in history, governments have been organized, walls have been built or rebuilt In Nehemiah's case, battles have been fought for the sake of families. Why? Because it's the core of civilization and a primary influence on the human condition. That's why we have to fight for our families. Do I hear an amen this morning? Come on, talk to me, talk to me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll come back to Nehemiah in a moment. Let's go to Moses. Moses is a character in the Bible who also had an incredible assignment by God. But he, he understood this particularly well when it came to the family. Um, Moses. Let's talk about Moses just for a moment. Who was Moses? What did Moses do? Moses was appointed to govern an entire race of people who had been severely, severely oppressed. Hundreds of years of persecution. Their identity had been threatened. Their will had been crushed. Their faith had been assaulted. And yet Moses comes in with this assignment from God this holy discontent to step up and step into all that he'd been called to do to help rediscover all of that which had been taken away from God's people. And here they are, on the verge of the most promising days, thanks to Moses, because he was kind of like that father figure for this nation. Thanks to Moses. Here he, here he goes. He stands before the people to do a speech. Scholars call it a testament testamentary, testamentary sorry, a testamentary speech where he begins with the recounting journey and reminds them of the covenants that they made with their God. And he reminds them of this. And he gets a little... Anxious or even a little concerned about how these people, their newfound blessings, what they're about to step into will affect their faith. But not only that, more specifically, he seems intent on addressing how they would uh, transfer their faith to their children and and the next generations to come. And so here he is in history, in this pivotal moment of Israel's history. He speaks and he stands up and addresses this entire nation and calls everyone to be responsible for how the next generation is raised. Let's read it now. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your, say this word with me, children. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Foreheads, foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, by the way, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, Moses says, be careful that you do not forget who? The Lord. The Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. I've gone a little bit too far, haven't I? You're a little bit too far, that's okay. But you get the idea, you get where Moses is coming from here, don't we? Where Moses warns the Israelites about a few things, what's going on here? He warns them against the danger of becoming spoiled by the wealth of Canaan, this land you're about to enter, it's going to be flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey. It's going to be filled with incredible things that you did not do. You didn't bring them about at all. Just be aware of that, he says. And so to be careful not to forget God and become distracted by prosperity and riches. And what does he do? Did you hear it? He gives them a plan. He gives them a plan. And the plan is this, to guard their heritage and to transfer their faith faith into the next generation. To guard their heritage and transfer their faith to the next generation. Moses knew that God chose the family and the faith community as the two entities in which he would tell his story to a generation. Maybe you could restate it this way, just for a moment if I could. Churches are made up of broken people. Families are made up of broken people. And both exist for the same reason to show a broken world, God's message of restoration and redemption here endeth the lesson, let's go home. Did you capture it? Did you capture it? God's story. What have we established already? Let's, let's summarize what we've established. And I think we've established this. First of all, I think God's writing a bigger story. Yeah, God's writing a bigger story. We are connected to that story. The story is unfolding and has been unfolding since day dot. And that story is eternity. And this next generation is the next chapter in God's story. There's your answer. Write it down. You will get 100%. Let's think about this for a moment. Let's think about this for a moment. What's going on here? If you think about in history, um, biblical history, the history of the world, the history of the church, every generation, every generation all throughout Scripture was challenged to consider not just the past, not just the present, but especially the future, to consider the faith baton. In whom that baton was going to be passed on to the next generation. Psalm seventy-eight, verse four. Let's have a look here just for a moment. Says this: We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next. Say this word with me: Generation. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. Psalm seventy-one, verse eighteen. If we could keep going on to the next slide, says this: Even when I am old and grey. Do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to, where? To, to who? The next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. If we can keep going to the next slide in Joel chapter 1, verse 3. Good, good uh, book of the Bible, isn't it, Joel? Good book of the Bible. <laughs> it says, uh, Tell it to your children, Joel chapter 1. Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children. To who? Are you getting the idea? What does this mean for us? Let's come back home. We've gone there. We've gone there. Let's come back home together in community just for a moment because I think this is what it means for us. And I want to explain it like this. It was 20 years ago. It was, can you believe that? It was 20 years ago. Threadbow? Anyone old enough? Probably my age. Okay, Threadbow. Okay, it was 20 years ago. This June, July, somewhere around about that. Can you believe that? Stuart Diver was his name. His wife, Sally, passed away in that. Um, A tragic um, uh, rock fall in the mountains in New South Wales. Yep, so Stuart Diver. And so I think we've got a picture here. This is not of Stuart Diver, by the way. We've got that picture. Can we put that up? Is it there? Is it there? It's there. Fantastic. Um, I want to explain it like this, because sometimes we get these news stories, don't we? Where somebody's stuck in a hole. And they spend so much time and so many hours trying to get this one person or this group of people out. And here we have rescue teams and firefighters and doctors. Often thousands of dollars are spent in saving lives. And so there should be, by the way. So there should be. We value life in this country of Australia. And so here they are, working against the clock, and they have to collaborate to work together to make sure they get this person slash people out in time. And so they kind of come together, collaborate, and they say, we've got one shot at this. We've got one shot at this. It could, it could save this person's life. And so they ask each other, well, what's the right strategy What's the right strategy? Because it's the, st- the strategy that we come up with is crucial to get this person out of this hole alive. And who remembers that day? Stuart Diver. Yeah, you remember that day? He was rescued from that. And there are other people out in the ocean over the years, haven't there? They've been rescued, and it's great. It's uh, a wonderful thing for humanity. And, of course, we've got our Beaconsfield mining people as well, and a tragedy, of course, so, uh, that occurred there as well. Where I'm coming at with this particular illustration is this, that a few years ago, we asked the same question, do we have the right strategy for the next generation? And generally speaking, the last 100 years or so, the church has adopted the, well, I'm going to call this morning, the drop them off strategy. You see, when our children want to play sports or have dance or music lessons, what do we do? Bruce and I, we certainly don't dress up in leotards and you know, teach our daughters to dance, do we? Yeah, you might. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we, we drop them off to experts to teach them. We drop them off to school to educate them. We drop them off at swimming lessons so they can learn to swim. The church has created that same environment to drop our kids off for spiritual development. And so because of that, a few years back, the ministry team had been asking a certain amount of questions. Do we, do we have the best strategy and who is charged with the primary responsibility to discipline children, sorry, to disciple children? Woo. I'm not going there. Not today anyway. <sighs> who is charged with the primary responsibility to disciple children in the ways of God? You might remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If not, it goes like this. Where was I? Oh, I might just read it from there. Here we go. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children, Moses says. Families, impress them on your children. Talk about that when you sit at home and when you walk. In life, talk about these things with your children. And so from that, I'm just going to share, to finish off with this morning, to share three guiding statements with you that we've had to rethink the way that we've moved the next generation along our hope pathway here at Door of Hope. And the first statement is this, that parents have the greatest influence in their child's life. What I mean by that is this, that when a child starts kindergarten, who's there? The parent, when a child starts primary school, who's there? The parent, certainly not the children's and families minister or our youth pastor. The parents are there. When a child starts high school or college or TAFE or university, who pays for it? You get the idea. And so parents are uniquely positioned for long-term influence in their child's life. Now, if you're a regular attendee here at Door of Hope, at best... At best, we will have your child, and that's what these gumball machines are over here to, to kind of illustrate to you this morning. The large gumball machine has about 3,000 gumballs in there, and the one, smaller one next to it has about 40. And it's to represent this, that at best, if you're a regular attendee here at Door of Hope, your child will be, will be with us for around about 40 hours a year where you will have your child 3,000 hours a year of unstructured hours, by the way. And so parents are uniquely positioned for long-term influence. And because of this, here at Door of Hope, we've had an honest look at how and the way we do ministry with parents and children and what that looks like. We've even admitted, to tell you the truth, the way we have been doing children's and youth ministry and the way most churches do it, by the way, is actually Underemphasizing the calling and spiritual responsibility of parents however there is a second part to this yes you are the greatest influence in your child's life but you are not the only influence that your child needs and so for some years Uh, We've settled on five family values here at Door of Hope, and many of you may not have actually been here when we introduced these a few years back, but they are really important. I don't have time to go over them this morning. I'm going to do this next week in part two of our family series, and we're going to unpack these five family values even more. And that's them there. To widen the circle of influence, imagine the end, there it is, fight for the heart, we've been talking about that this morning to create a rhythm, and to make it personal. So these five family values, I'll talk about more next week, we hope will become a normal part of our conversation and make them a reality for the next generation. Second statement this morning, it's this, is is parents must own the spiritual development of their families. Parents must own the spiritual development of their families. Instead of outsourcing spiritual development, us parents... Us parents need to take ownership to help our children love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. You see, what happens at home is even more important than what happens here of a Sunday or a Friday night with us here at Door of Hope. So we hope, it is our hope, that our hope generation ministry is now regarded as plan B. Plan A is the parents taking that full ownership and that responsibility for the spiritual development of their children. Once again. However, our strategy as a church is to equip and resource parents. We're not leaving you alone in this. We are here to help and support. We do things together in community here. And so because of that, we've developed a mission statement that goes like this. Partnering with parents... To grow hope, the hope of Jesus, to grow hope in the next generation. That's the mission statement we've settled on and landed on these past few years. A couple of questions just to finish up with, and I'm done this morning, that you may have in regards to this. I guess the first question I'd really like to help answer this morning is this. Well, why don't more parents take responsibility in spiritual development? Uh, I guess just speaking, speaking personally and maybe speaking also from my interaction with some of you, I think it sometimes comes down to personal Insecurities. They kind of creep in, don't they? You know, deep down, we know as parents what maybe the depth of our walk with Jesus is really like some days. And because of that, insecurity kind of rises up and takes over and says, Well, I'm not in any position to be teaching my children about God. And so because of that, we just do nothing. Maybe there's a lot of questions that rise up in you or in your child that are unresolved and you don't know how to handle that whatever it is it's certainly not about pulling out a concordance to have a three-hour bible study each and every day no 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 no. it's not that at all it's actually in fact creating space where it's normal in our everyday conversations to talk about faith in our family praying together about certain decisions and as you pray together the children actually realize that god is actually guiding my family it's a beautiful thing. The second thing second question. in fact, I think this once again, I feel this is from God for some people in this place this morning, and it's this: I would like to acknowledge and address single mums and single dads here this morning. I simply would just want to say this morning that what you have is a massive task. It is hard enough uh, in a marriage relationship um, to build a family. And I guess I simply just want to say to single mums and single dads, which we do have here at Door of Hope, and are more than welcome to journey with us, is that we love you, we respect you, we are here to help you, and we are here to serve you. Do you agree with that, church? Amen. So from God's perspective, still on single mums and dads, just for a moment, if I could, and it's this. You read the Psalms, and you read about the character of God, and a part of the character of God in Psalm 68, he says that he is a defender. He is a defender. He is your defender. He is fighting for you. And he wants you to hear that this morning. He's hiding you underneath the shadow of his wings, the Bible says. And he cares for you. And he's holding you close. That's all I want to say. Final statement, and I'm done. It's this. Beautiful things happen, don't they? When the church and families come together. It's a partnership of faith, hope, and love. When plan A and plan B unite, something powerful happens. And don't you think this is how God created it to be, that we're a part of this bigger picture? And because of that, I guess that's where we've settled as a ministry team, that we are convinced that the best strategy for the future of our church, for faith to be carried to the next generation, is to equip, to support, and encourage parents and families. But we've got to fight. We've got to fight. We fight fair, we fight hard, and we fight together for the sake of this next generation. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. And what a gift it is. What a gift it is. The gift of family, the gift of children, the gift of grandchildren. We thank you so much that no matter where we come from in life, we might live alone, we might live a single life, whatever it is, we're a part of a family. We're a part of your family. In fact, we're a part of a bigger story than just so much just about ourselves. We're a part of the next generation In raising the next generation. We each have a responsibility for that. And we're thankful that we're part of a family. And many things pile into insignificance compared to the thrill of developing a young life into a young man and a young woman of conviction character and faith and sending them into the world as adults who will make great choices and will love God and pursue His purposes in this world. That's our prayer, Lord, as a church, that you would protect the family. You would grant each family courage to fight for what really does matter. matter. That you'll bless each family. In fact, that you would fire each parent up to live for God themselves so their kids will catch it, their kids will see it, And the kids will feel it, but ultimately the children will live it out just as they live it out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. How about we stand? Is that okay? How about we stand and we sing our final song this morning.